Well, as Amanda said, you know, one of the places that we can participate, among others, is, is simply being able to pray for one another. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to talk about prayer. We're still in our series on the book of Daniel, and we're skipping ahead a little bit. We were in chapter 6 last week. We're skipping all the way to chapter 9, and we're going to look actually at the first half of this amazing prayer that Daniel prays. In fact, we'll be in this chapter for the next two weeks talking about prayer. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Daniel 9 and follow along, or you can just follow along with me on the screen there. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and we have done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commands and your rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants and his prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for your word, even when it's hard. We are thankful for your word, even when, and maybe especially when it drives us to our knees. Because, Lord, it is when we are on our knees that we can see who we are clearly. We can see who you are clearly in your righteousness, in your justice, in your holiness. And we can see clearly who you are in your love and grace and mercy. That is what we cling to 
as we approach you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is uh, quickly approaching the time for watching Christmas movies. Not yet. We have to celebrate Thanksgiving first, but, uh, but soon, soon it's coming. And one of my favorites is the movie A Christmas Story. It tells the story of young Ralphie kind of growing up. And there's one scene that's so great where it's got all the, the boys, the kind of elementary school boys, and they're, they're huddled out on the playground together and it's cold they're in Indiana, I think, somewhere in the Midwest, and it's cold, and one of them starts telling the story of a kid he knew that stuck his tongue to a frozen flagpole and got his tongue stuck on the flagpole. And as, of course, as they're kind of debating, you know, about, you know, whether this is true or not, one of them throws out a dare to another kid, well, I dare you to try it, to stick your tongue to the flagpole. And they started in this little process, you know, kind of of negotiation where there's a dare and there's kind of a, you know, a backing away. And of course it ratchets up, you know, I, I double dog dare you, you know, and he finally gets to the very kind of pinnacle of all dares, I triple dog dare you. And there's no backing down from a triple dog dare. So uh, Flick, this young, poor young boy, uh, he, you know, to save his honor, sticks his tongue to the frozen flagpole and it sticks and he can't get it off. Well, about that time, the bell rings, and uh, all of his friends abandon him and run inside to the classroom. And the next scene is kind of in the classroom where, where the teacher is teaching, and she looks around, and she says, where's Flick? And one of the kids just kind of points out the window, and she turns, and she sees this poor kid standing stuck to the flagpole with his tongue out, you know, stuck, frozen to the flagpole. And after he's kind of rescued by the fire department and brought back inside, uh, we hear the teacher saying this, you know, to the kids, well, I sure hope you feel guilty for what you've done. You nobody fessed up to what it was, but the guilt that you feel is far worse than any punishment you could ever receive. And then the voice of Ralphie, who's, who's the narrator in this, says this, he says, Grown-ups say stuff like that all the time, but kids know it's always better not to get caught. That's kind of the way I think that many of us and probably most of our culture think about confession of sin, is that really it's just kind of better not to get caught. I read a story of this tribe in Papua New Guinea, the Kuwaru warriors, and this group of warriors has a very interesting practice. Before they go to war or before they do anything actually that feels even difficult at all, all of these men will actually go out kind of into the woods and they'll, they'll, they'll kill a pig and roast this pig and have this great feast. And as they're sitting around feasting together, they start confessing their sins to one another. And one will say to another, uh, I, I stole something from you a few months ago. Or uh, I lied, actually, about something between us. And they, they even go deeper kind of into their, their heart motivations. They'll say, you know, I, I, I coveted after your wife. Or I've been harboring jealousy against you. Or, you know, I've actually thought these particular thoughts about you. And they confess all their sins together before they go into, the war, into war because they believe that having kind of negative feelings will actually sap their strength. That unconfessed sin will sap their strength before they go into war. Now, our culture usually lands itself in the Ralphie position where we kind of think, you know, really what I need to do 
is kind of pull myself up, hide all the bad things about myself, project something really great for the world to see, and that's how I'm going to get by in the world. That's how I'm going to come and find even happiness in life. But really what the Bible says is that these warriors have something really right, is that confession actually leads to happiness in our lives. In fact, that's so much of what Daniel is saying in this prayer. Prayer is one of the ways that we get to know God. It's amazing. God has given us ways that we get to come and know him. He's given us his word. He's given us worship together, even visible signs like sacraments to come and know him. And he's given us prayer that we get to come and know him. It's an amazing gift. But the truth is, we can't experience the knowledge of God without the practice of confession. We cannot truly experience who God is without first looking at who we are and entering into confession. When we come before God, his people are always called to come on their knees. So what we're going to look at in this first half of Daniel 9 is what it means to pray and confess, what confessing prayer really looks like. We'll look at the second half of Daniel 9 next week and look at prayer from a different angle. But today, we're going to look at confession. And we're, we're going to interrogate this passage today. And don't, there, will be, there will be no waterboarding, uh, but we're going to ask it some good questions. We're going to use some interrogative questions to see what's going on here. And here's what we're going to talk about. Uh, how should we confess? What should we confess? When should we confess? And to whom? should we confess? How to confess, uh, when to con- or what to confess, when to confess, and to whom to confess, okay? So let's talk about how first. How should we confess? And I'll give you the answer right up front on this one. We are to confess fully. Daniel shows us in his example in chapter 9 that we are to confess honestly and fully to one another, I read about a study that, was, uh, that came out a few years ago, and the study was actually called I Cheated, But Just a Little. And it was actually a study of what it means to kind of confess our sins and only especially to confess them partially. And out of these 4,000 respondents that were surveyed, uh, the, the researchers actually came up with some really interesting information. And the interesting information they came up with was different than the way that most of us kind of think about even confession. I want you to hear what the lead researcher says about this. He said, people expect partial confession to be more believable and more guilt-relieving than not confessing. But our findings show the exact opposite. People seeking redemption by partially admitting their big lies feel guiltier because they do not take complete responsibility for their behaviors. The Harvard Business Review summarized the research this way. It said, confession is a powerful way to relieve guilt, but it only works if you tell the whole truth. It only works if you tell the whole truth. Daniel is telling the whole truth here, friends. You probably heard it over and over and over. In fact, maybe when you were hearing it, you were thinking, man, ease up on yourself, Daniel. Don't beat yourself up so bad. But what Daniel realizes is actually that wonderful truth that the Harvard Business Review even realizes is that the only way that we can really confess and find fulfillment in that is if we tell the whole truth. 
Listen just to, to the way that Daniel lays out his confession over this chapter. Uh, verse 5 and 6, you know, we can, there's so much just even in those couple of verses. He says, we have sinned and we have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled. We have turned aside. He's using every possible way he could explain how to talk about this to talk about it. And he says even this, we haven't listened You've spoken to us, you told us the truth, it was right out there, it was plain, it was black and white, and we didn't listen. We did the, we did the exact opposite. He sums this up in, chapter, I mean, in verse 15 by simply saying, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. I don't know if you've ever seen that show, uh, Kitchen Nightmares. Gordon Ramsay is the host, and he's that, uh, you know, um, <laughs> prickly is probably the best way to put it, uh, English chef. And he comes into these restaurants, they're oftentimes kind of mom and pop places, and these families that have all of their, you know, blood, sweat, and tears in these restaurants, and of course, they're failing, and Gordon Ramsay comes in to help them. And and there's always kind of this point in, in the show where there's a realization that takes place. Because most of the time, these restaurants, again, they're fully invested in them, and they actually think their food's really good. And they think, I, we, we have no idea why people don't want to eat at this restaurant because our food is so good. And there's always this point uh, in, in the show where Gordon Ramsay orders like, you know, the whole menu and he sits down and he starts tasting it and then just lambasting the food in front of the owners and explaining to them exactly how terrible each of these dishes actually is. And you've always got this, this kind of point, you know, that it could go either way for these guys. Are they going to listen to the brutal truth? Or are they going to kind of live in the image that they've built for themselves? Uh, Daniel is playing the role of Gordon Ramsay, okay, in this passage. He is giving God's people and you and I the brutal truth. He's not pulling any punches because he knows that we need to know it and we need to know it fully. Friends, when we confess to the Lord and to one another... When we do it in worship, when we do it in private, when we do it in small groups, when we do it one-on-one, the worst possible thing we could do is to project something untrue about ourselves, to kind of put some image out there to God that we think we want him to believe. And friends, the truth is that in doing so, we completely reverse the gospel The gospel, the good news is not that you put on your best face and God accepts you because of it. That is not the good news, friends. If that is your perception of Christianity, then you have Christianity backwards because that news is not good. The real good news is that God actually sees who we really are in our real brokenness, in our real pain, in our real failings in our real sin and rebellion, and he loves us not because of our best, but he loves us in our worst because of Jesus' best. (laughs) That's good news. And when we are honest and full in our confession, what we are doing is we are celebrating the gospel. We are saying God accepts sinners, as the apostle Paul said, of whom I am chief. That's the way that we confess. That's how. Let's move to the second piece. What? What to confess? Well, this one has, you know, a few different answers. 
first of all, uh, is that we confess our sin. And I think it's helpful to point out quickly, we don't just confess our actions, but we actually confess our motivations. We confess the heart-level sin that draws us away from God, the idolatry that lives in our hearts that says, I really want to be the center of my own universe. We confess not just our actions, but our motivations. But here's something really fascinating going on actually in this passage, and it's something that is probably unsettling to most of us. And that's this, is that Daniel is not just confessing his own sins. He's confessing other people's sins too. This is corporate confession. Daniel confessing on the behalf of others. Now, that's an odd thing for us. We are Americans. We are Texans even. We are the most individual of any individuals you could ever find. And so this idea that we are somehow culpable for the sin of others is oftentimes really offensive to us. But guys, this is just simply the way that the Bible presents things. What the Bible says is that Christians, God's people, are united to one another. That we are bound together to each other. That we are members, the Bible says, of one another. And we don't stop being individuals But we are actually corporate. In fact, it's like a family. This is the image we get a lot in the Bible. In a family, you have individuals, a husband, a wife, children. They're all individuals. But they're also members of each other, aren't they? They all share the same last name. They all live in the same house. And actually, uh, the family affects the individual, and the individual affects the family. And so in some way, we own each other's blessings, and we own each other's sins. We got to see this even in, uh, even in the election going on right now, right? Like in an election, in the way that we do elections in our country, we each individually get to cast a vote. You get your own vote. But what happens then? You become part of a collective, don't you? When you vote in Texas, then the votes are counted in Texas, and then Texas has a vote. When you look at the map, you don't see Derek's vote. You see Texas's vote. I'm an individual that I am bound together with others. This is the way that the Bible actually talks about God's people, is that we are part and parcel with one another. We are bound together. And so when we are honest, when we are humble, when we are confessing, it's actually right and appropriate that we unite ourselves even in confessing the sins of the church, of the body that we belong to. There is a wonderful... um, article written by Tim Keller came out uh, just a few months ago about biblical justice and how he lays out here's what biblical justice is and then compares it actually to different views of secular justice. I recommend the the article uh, heartily. But there's this one part in there that's really helpful, I think, where he talks about this concept, this idea that sometimes actually I'm responsible for the sins of others. And he lays out actually three kind of ways that even draw it deeper at the heart level of how we are connected to others in our sin. Just let me, let me read this to you and listen while I read. Uh, three ways that this can go deeper. The first is this, corporate responsibility. Uh, in Joshua 7, Achan's family did not do the stealing, but they helped him become the kind of man who would steal. The Bible's emphasis on the importance of the family for character formation implies that the rest of the family cannot wholly avoid a responsibility for the behavior of a member. 
His family didn't do the stealing, but they helped him become the kind of man who would do that. Secondly, corporate participation. Sinful actions not only shape us, but they shape the people around us. And when we, when we sin, we affect those around us, which reproduces sinful patterns, even if they're more subtle over generations. So as in Exodus 20, God punishes the sin down to the generations because usually the latter generations participate in one form or another in the same sin. And then third, institutionalized sin. Socially institutionalized ways of life become weighted in favor of the powerful and the oppressive over those with less power. Examples from the Bible include criminal justice systems in Leviticus 19, commercial practices such as high interest loans in Exodus 22 and Jeremiah 22, or unfairly low loans in James 5, or delayed wages like Deuteronomy 24. And once these systems are in place, they do more evil than any one individual within the system may intend or even be aware of. I want us to just pause for a second. I know that's a lot of information to take in. I want to pause for a second and just just consider this. That not only are we bound to one another so that the sin of the church in some way becomes our sin as well, but the truth is, that the seeds of those sins usually reside in our own hearts too. And it's helpful for us simply to ask this question. What's the problem and how am I a part of it? What's the problem and how am I a part of the problem? Friends, this is something that's helpful for all of us because when I look at the world, I see a lot of problems. But when I look at my heart, I see a lot of the same things going on. So I see a lot of the same sexual brokenness that's out in the culture and in the church. I see a lot of the same consumerism and greed. I see a lot of the same selfishness. I see a lot of the same cynicism and hopelessness. And I see it in my own heart. It's good for us to unite ourselves, even with the sins of those around us, Because usually, there's going to be a glimmer of that same thing in our lives too. All right, let's move on to the third question, is when. When is the time to confess? And uh, like this last one, there's actually probably a few answers that we could give to this one. (laughs) One nice, easy question would be, all the time. Martin Luther said, life is repentance, What he meant by that was the Christian life does not mean that you repent once and then you live out the rest of your life in self-sufficiency. That's not what Christian sanctification is. We are actually called to be those who continually come to the foot of the cross, who are continually repenting, who are continually turning from sin and turning to Jesus. So part of that answer is that confession should be a continual, regular, everyday even practice in our lives. But I want to kind of, kind of zoom in on one thing that's going on in this passage, is that confession is also the right response to reading God's Word. Now, this may have kind of flown by in the first couple of verses, but that's the setting that's happening here. Daniel is actually reading the Bible. Daniel says he's sitting down and he's reading from the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah. 
That's what we would consider to be our Bible. That's the prophet Jeremiah. We have that as the book of Jeremiah. And as Daniel is reading God's word, he responds in confession. This is actually the way that prayer is supposed to work. God speaks to us by his word. We speak to him back in prayer. And oftentimes we're speaking back to him the things that he tells us is true of him in his word. Oftentimes we're speaking back to him even the promises that he gives us in his word. But we're oftentimes also speaking back to him what we know is true of us, what we see as the darkness in our own hearts. And so confession is an enormous uh, uh, partner to what it means to read to open up God's word. It's a reflex response for Daniel here. You know, when the doctor, when you were young, would sit you on that table and, you know, hit that little, little rubber hammer on your knee and your knee would just bounce automatically? It's a reflex response, right? That's the same thing that's supposed to happen, actually, to God's people when they open up his word. When we open up God's word and we read who God is, and we see especially his holiness and his justice and his righteousness, when we hear of his promises to us, when we see him glorious and lifted up, it is right for us to see who we are and to reflect on our own lives and to draw before him in confession. That is a good and right and true thing. Scripture and prayer are meant to go together. So let me just briefly say this. I recommend this for you. In your own times of devotion, if you don't do this already, Scripture and prayer should always be partners. Open up God's word and open up your heart in prayer. Even use God's word sometimes to pray. It's really helpful sometimes to just open the Psalms and pray the prayers that those psalmists were praying. It's hard sometimes to find the right words, and so it's helpful to go and gather biblical words even to pray. All right, that's when. Our final one here is to whom. To whom should we be confessing? And of course, there are multiple answers to this one as well. The first is that you should confess to the people that you have wronged. If you have wronged somebody, you should confess to that person and seek forgiveness from that person. But David reminds us in Psalm 51 that even when we sin against other human beings, we are ultimately sinning against God. David says that in Psalm 51, he says, it's against you, Lord, you only, who I have sinned, even though we know, of course, he sinned against Bathsheba as well and plenty of other people. And so when we sin against one another, it is good and right that we should confess to the Lord. There was this guy named uh, Jeffrey Jacobs or Jesse Jacobs who created something kind of fun called the Apology Hotline, and it's a phone number with an answering machine attached to it that's just open for anybody to call and make an apology anonymously. It's, it's kind of like the, it's the phone version of a confessional booth, and he'll get 30 to 50 messages a week from people who call in and they're confessing things, you know, just, you know, from as small as little white lies to really big things like adultery. And they're leaving this confession on his answering machine. And listen to what he says about, his, about this. I think it's fascinating. He says, the hotline offers participants a chance to alleviate their guilt and to some degree to own up to their misdeeds. And I'm just hoping that these people will feel better themselves just by getting whatever's been bothering them off their chest. One caller to the hotline remarked, I hope this apology will cleanse me and basically purify my soul. God knows I need it. Now, the apology hotline um, has gotten a couple things right. He's realized confession is good for the soul. But there's a really key 
missing element, isn't there? Is that they're confessing to the wrong person. You can't confess to the wrong person. I can't punch Jim and apologize to Owen. That wouldn't make any sense. I haven't offended Owen. I've offended Jim. And what the Bible says is that the one whom we have offended, first and foremost, is the Lord. And so we bring our confessions to him. We lay down our honest souls before him, and we lay ourselves bare before the Lord. Confession is us actually participating in being honest before the Lord and coming before, yes, even our judge and, and, and telling him of our guilt. But let me just say there's really good news in this too. Because the one to whom we confess is righteous. He is holy. He is good. He is the one and true judge, and he is the one that we have offended. But friends, he is also the God who loves us and has bound himself to us. I want you to just listen again to some of the things uh, that we hear from Daniel here. Listen to verse 4 again. It's the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love that he's confessing to. The God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, the God who has promised himself to his people by actually the blood of his own son, and the God who keeps steadfast love and mercy. That's actually the very important Hebrew word, hesed. It is this very special, beautiful word that describes God's covenant love and mercy to his people. And Daniel says right from the, right from the get-go here, that the one that we confess to is this covenant-keeping, loving, and merciful God. He says it in verse 9 again. It's, to, to, to the Lord belongs mercy and forgiveness. To the Lord belongs mercy and forgiveness. That means that's his nature. <coughs> that is who God is. It is a description of who he is. He is merciful. He is forgiving. That's who we confess to. He goes on in verse 13, that we've not entreated the favor of the Lord, he says. But do you hear what's embedded in that? Is that when we do entreat the Lord, what he gives is his favor. This is a God who loves to forgive, who loves to receive the confessions of his people. And then we finish in verse 15, and Daniel says this, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, we have sinned and done wrong. See what Daniel appeals to is the salvation of the Lord. He's done it before. He has showed himself to be a savior. He has rescued his people from bondage and he will continue to rescue them even when they come to him with their sins. Friends, we come and confess to a God who has covenanted himself to us by the blood of his son, whose nature it is to be merciful and forgiving who has shown himself to be a savior, who has declared himself to love his people and desire them to come to him. But you know, it actually gets even better because Jesus also prays multiple times in the gospel. He gives us wonderful models for prayer. In fact, the Lord's prayer is the model. Jesus says, when you pray, you can pray like this. But you know, Jesus also prayers, prays prayers of confession in fact, some of his last words were a confession, but they were not confessing his sin. They were confessing ours. Father, forgive them, Jesus says. Forgive them. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is still praying. He is continually interceding for us. 
You know what I think he's saying? Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Friends, that is the God that we serve. That is the God that we bring our confession to. That is the God who loves us so deeply that he would shed his own blood on our behalf. That's someone worth being honest with, isn't it? Let's pray that he would work that in our own hearts today. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we do confess our failings. We confess, Lord, that we have no right to stand before you. We confess, Lord, that you have called and we have not listened. We confess, Lord, that you have been clear and we have disobeyed. We confess that we are a part of these same sins that Daniel claims here. Your people in the Old Testament, your people in the church now, they are one and the same people and so we are bound together with them and we fall under the same condemnation. But Lord, how glorious it is that we fall under the same grace. That you are a God who loves to save. That you have told us that when we come and we confess our sins that you are faithful and just to forgive us. That is good, good news. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.